This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The government has announced yet another crackdown on people arriving in the UK in so-called small boats. They will not stop coming here until the world knows that if you enter Britain illegally, you will be detained and swiftly removed. Rishi Sunak apparently wants voters to know that he's now pushing policy to the outer limits of legality. But with warnings that the government's new plans are unworkable, costly and even immoral, how did we get here? They have been in power for 13 years. The asylum system is broken and they broke it. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. This, on the surface, is clearly a conversation about refugees, but as far as its place in politics is concerned, it's a proxy for immigration. There are so many things at play here, and as we'll discuss later, there have been for a long, long time. Just to start, let's remind ourselves briefly of what the government wants to do. Nearly all people who come to the UK on so-called small boats, if the government has its way, will be automatically disallowed from making claims for asylum. They'll be detained for at least 28 days without recourse to bail or judicial review, by which time the government hopes to have deported them either to their country of origin, or if that isn't possible, to another supposedly safe country such as Rwanda. To do this, the Home Secretary's duty to remove people will take priority over people's ability to appeal against their removal using the Human Rights Act or the United Nations Refugee Convention. Later, we'll talk through the policy with The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Kriar. But first, I wanted to put this debate in context with two people, the immigration specialist Zoe Gardner and the pollster Luke Trill. Zoe, a video of you went viral a couple of weeks ago when you were answering a question from the somewhat notorious Conservative MP Jonathan Gullis. He said, if these people arriving from Calais are legitimate refugees, why are they not claiming asylum in France? Why do they need to come to the UK? And you sort of uh, informed him and set him right in various ways. I wonder, zooming out from that exchange, what that conversation maybe tells us about the politics of asylum and refugees and where all this is going. I think that what it tells us is that we're, we're taking part in some sort of sick participatory performance art piece. That question was asked to me on the bill committee hearing for the last 
uh, asylum anti-refugee bill that this government put forward that came into law just a year ago. But I think it really speaks to where we're at now, where we're going through the whole theatre of another new bill um, whose purpose is, is just to have the fight and isn't actually to resolve the problem at all. It's pure performance as you see it. We shouldn't really interrogate this bill in terms of practical effects and what the policy might look like if it's realised. It's another instalment in the government picking fights and wanting to be seen, really, to make a lot of noise about this. That's the way you see it. That is how I see it, although I would caution that while that is the case, that does not diminish in any way the very serious impacts that the bill will have. It's just that they won't go in any real way to achieving the ends that the government says it has in proposing this legislation. So they say they want to um, stop people from seeking asylum in this country through irregular means. Now, all the evidence we have shows that deterrence measures like this just simply don't work. At best, they may redirect people to less visible means of entering the country um, irregularly, but they just simply don't make people disappear. But what they're proposing will have a massive impact in terms of the harm it will cause. So they're proposing a blanket detention and ban from this country on anyone who comes to seek asylum through those means. Yeah, so in that sense, it's more than performance art, as you put it before. That, Forgive me, that might sound a bit flip. This will, this will have very real consequences for lots and lots of people. Yes, it absolutely will. Um, and it goes beyond that as well. I mean, the, the consequences for people who are seeking to build new lives in the UK uh, cannot be overstated. But I think we also need to look at how this plays out when we look at international geopolitics and we look at how our actions will have an impact on the approaches of other countries. And at the moment, we're stuck in a spiral of a horrific race to the bottom. Who can be the cruelest to refugees so that these people end up going here, there, anywhere else, not our backyard? And it's absolutely horrendous. And where are we in those sort of international comparisons in the context of this legislation? I wouldn't go quite as far as to say that we're the worst of the worst, um, but among the richest countries in the world, um, which we are part of, we tend to lead the pack in proposing the most outlandish and horrific policies towards refugees. Straightforward question. Who is crossing in so-called small boats and why? It's a straightforward question. It's got a bit of a long answer. So the figures that we have show that um, they are coming from countries including, first of all, Albania, then Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, um, Eritrea. Um, so all countries that we recognize as being countries that are, you know, it, some of the most unsafe countries in the world, except perhaps Albania. Albania does have some quite significant issues, including uh, for honor violence, trafficking and gang issues where the state isn't often able to provide protection, but not on the same level as the other countries. So wait, wait, wait. Do you, do you reject then the idea that anyone coming here from Albania is, ne- is therefore necessarily an economic migrant? You don't buy that? I don't buy that. The figures speak for themselves. The most recent figures we have show that 50% of asylum seekers from Albania were recognized as refugees in the year ending December 2022. However, it is true that that is a much higher proportion when it's women. So women in particular are at risk in Albania and men have a lower proportion of, of claims granted. But that isn't to say that none of them need protection and that I really must emphasise that everybody has the right and must have that right protected to have an individual assessment of their claim to determine whether or not they are at risk. And anyone, refugee or not, deserves to be treated with human rights and dignity. 
Okay, and then briefly, why are they coming via that route in in much greater numbers than they were what four or five years ago, even more recently than that? Yeah, it's a combination of factors, really. So what the evidence shows us is that when we crack down on one route, people just move and to start taking another route. So there's been decades and decades of fence building and patrol building and, and technology being invested in making um, access to lorries and, and the Channel Tunnel extremely difficult for refugees. So that's one of the factors that push people to take boats. Another is under the COVID restrictions, there were far fewer lorries and trains to get onto. So that drove that. But then the key thing that I think has driven the increase is that these are people who want to be found. They are not people who want to be hiding and sneaking in in a clandestine way. They are people who want to be identified by the authorities and then they want to claim asylum. And we see that because they all claim asylum. So I think that the visibility of the route, while it has been detrimental in terms of the attention that it's got, is actually one of the reasons why they're using that, that route. Okay. You would agree, presumably, that the asylum system in the UK is in a mess? <laughs> yes, to put it mildly. Okay. So what would you do about it? Well, I think that We've had a massive underinvestment in decision-making capability in the Home Office. So while the numbers of asylum seekers have steadily climbed in the last few years, um, and that's been the case across Europe, um, and it's driven by conflict situations and instability globally, we have decreased the number of asylum decisions that we're making. In the meantime, we've made the deliberate political choice to house people in unsuitable hotel accommodation and not to consult with local communities about how best to accommodate people who are within the system. And so that has caused a huge amount of friction and a huge amount of pain and difficulty. So you need to invest in um, asylum decision making that works, that, that provides answers within a reasonable time frame, and you need to make the system accessible to people so they don't have to rely on smuggling routes. But that involves opening up far more pathways to mobility, including visa access or visa-free access for people fleeing from um, dangerous situations worldwide. Which the government would say was politically impossible. Imagine trying to sell that to the electorate, they would say. Well, if you look at the real numbers... This is um, no no more people coming in and seeking asylum per year as one of the football stadiums to go and watch a, a match at, say, Old Trafford on every weekend. So these are these are numbers that if there wasn't this intense media scrutiny and political demonization of these people would be easily absorbed. Clearly, the numbers of people um, arriving in the UK claiming asylum is is dependent or reflective of events in the wider world, right? And uh, it seems to me and lots of other people that in that sense, the numbers of people are only likely to increase, right? If you think about things like the number of climate refugees in the world, right? We're looking into a future where population movement on a large scale is going to become more and more common. That's absolutely right. And it's important to remember people move. We always have. It's the basic adaptive human safety behavior. We've always moved. That's why we've populated the entire world. And we move from where we cannot live to where we can live. And you're absolutely right. But with climate catastrophe impacting more and more communities, this is not going away. So I urge people when you're looking at this legislation and this debate in the media to zoom out a little bit and think about where do you see this situation Um a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, is the UK seriously still detaining on mass thousands and thousands of refugees? No, mobility will always happen. Oh, thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you, John. We're told that the government thinks um, this issue is such a high priority because that's what voters tell them. And if they're going to even have a faint chance of avoiding defeat at the next election, then the issue of so-called small boats demands action. 
So in that sense, we need to talk about public opinion. Luke Trill is the UK director of More in Common, an organisation that specialises in the sort of nuances and details of public opinion and how people feel about issues of one kind or another. Luke, you, I know, have run focus groups, been party to focus groups which have explored this issue. Tell me about the sort of language you hear people using when they talk about it. Yeah, well, I think firstly, it's important to say that that language differs uh, depending on which group of people that you're speaking to. But I think the group of people who the government are aiming this policy at are red wall voters. So that group of voters who the Conservatives took from Labour at the last election uh, and they desperately want to hang on to the next one. The first thing to say, there's no doubt that small boats are a big issue for this group. When we do polling, it's usually one of their top three issues, uh, along with the cost of living and the NHS. And when you talk to people uh, in these red wall focus groups about small boats, the first thing that they tend to come to is fairness. It just doesn't seem to be fair that certain people can flout the rules and get into the country, whereas others who don't make that crossing can't do it. And then the second thing, and I think this is what makes it so salient, is it's this sense of disorder. People think it looks chaotic. The channel is quite emblematic for lots of people as the border of the country. And so this sense that people are breaching that uh, makes them feel it's disordered. And, and they don't understand why we can't get a grip on it. Yeah. Okay. Now, one of the distinguishing features of most so-called red wall places, as we both know, is that they're maybe not doing so well economically and haven't been for some time. And I'm always struck by the fact that very often you do sense that questions about economic insecurity, housing and work and all that are somehow woven through all this. That there's there's a sense of feeling worried about people competing for scarce resources. Uh, absolutely. When we've been running focus groups, particularly over the past year, you've got the migration issue in general, not just limited to small boats and asylum seekers, bleeding into people's general perception of shambles Britain. So people will say, you know, I can't get a GP appointment. I'm really worried about if my elderly relatives have a fall. We've got this cost of living crisis. And on top of that, whilst we're suffering here, and people often use that language, you're asking us to bring even more people in to compete for that uh, what they think at the moment is a very small pie. So that is that economic insecurity is definitely a huge driver there. And again, that comes through the polling. Multiculturalism and bringing people from different cultures to the UK comes very low on the list of people's concerns. Uh, number one and two are GPs in the NHS and housing. Now, in all the great noise that's been kicked up by what Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak um, have proposed, political academic Rob Ford from Manchester University on Tuesday pointed out that the share of voters naming immigration as uh, the most important problem facing the country in Mori polling didn't drop below 30% month in, month out between 2013 and 2016, which is sort of peak Brexit, pre-Brexit time. But he says that in the last two years, it's been just above 20% in one month only. Far fewer people care or prioritise the issue of immigration than they did a few years ago. And in that sense, by implication, there's something a bit sort of out of time about this announcement. Do you buy any of that? Attitudes to immigration in general have shifted, particularly since the Brexit vote. Uh, and actually, in lots of cases, you speak to people and they say, um, I rather wish we had more people coming over to fill vacancies in the NHS 
and areas like that. That is very different to small boats. Uh, and again, it goes to that issue of fairness and following the rules. Because the the other side of it is so-called blue wall voters, which is to say the sort of people who who often live, like I do actually, um, in Tory Lib Dem marginals, right, who might be put off by this new sort of hardline draconian authoritarian rhetoric. And though, and so, although the Tories might hang on to so-called red wall voters, they might drop more liberally inclined people who are a bit horrified by this. I think that's precisely the risk. So these sort of Cameronite Tories, lots of them held their nose and voted Tory at the last election, largely because of Jeremy Corbyn. But lots of them also voted Remain. They don't like the Brexit rhetoric. They don't like the culture wars stuff. They agree that small boat crossings uh, need to stop. But what they won't like is the amping up of the rhetoric. And I think what would be a particular red rag to this group of voters is any murmurings around the European Court of Human Rights. This is a group of people who are proud of Britain's role on the international stage, particularly when it comes to things like human rights. Uh, And the danger is, actually, this is a group of voters who quite like Rishi Sunak at the moment. In our polling, they're the one block of voters he sort of won back uh, whilst he's still struggling with the Red Wall. And so you could see a situation, actually, where this doesn't do quite enough to win back those Red Wall voters for whom, you know, even though they care about small boats, the cost of living still comes top. And it alienates these more liberal uh, voters in the Blue Wall. And so he actually ends up losing at both ends as a result. Right. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Luke. Really lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. OK, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to talk to Pippa Krirar, The Guardian's political editor, about the Conservatives' plan and why this issue seems to be so tricky for both main Westminster parties to talk about. The wait is over and we are back for Series 2 of Pop Culture with me, Shante Joseph. We'll dive into the biggest pop culture stories of the week again, from Meghan and Harry. And this is why sort of turning Harry and Meghan into polarising figures ticks a lot of boxes, because it just drives clicks. To Rihanna. Rihanna rocks up at about one. She just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world, just running a couple of minutes late. And of course, the chaos of my life. I meet someone, I show my friends, they're like, mm, yeah, it's okay. Four weeks later, I'm sliding down the wall crying. One week later, I message my friends, I met you guys. This is how I dated 11 people in one year. Join me every Thursday from the 16th of March, wherever you get your podcasts. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. (laughs) 
Welcome back. I'm joined now by The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Crero. Hi. Hi, John. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. How was the surname pronunciation this week? Pretty good. You're getting better every time. That's good. I'm glad I'm improving. <laughs> right, let's talk about the government and asylum and so-called small boats and all of that. Um, the government's new plan, we know, is to somehow stop small boats from crossing the channel entirely, or that's what they say. That's clearly a very strong pledge. Let's have a quick listen to what uh, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, said about all this on Tuesday. The British people are famously a fair and patient people. But their sense of fair play has been tested beyond its limits, and they've seen the country taken for a ride. Their patience has run out. The law-abiding patriotic majority have said, enough is enough. This cannot and will not continue. Their government, this government, must act decisively, must act with determination, must act with compassion, must act with proportion. So make no mistake, this Conservative government, this Conservative Prime Minister will act now to stop the boats. Pippa, that's what they say they want to do, to somehow sort of fly in the face of the fact that numbers of people crossing the channel in so-called small boats has been increasing for quite a long time and stop them entirely. Just give me your reading of, of, of what they're proposing, why they're proposing it, and what's in the legislation. So um, there's quite a lot there, so I'll try and be as succinct as I can. <laughs> in a nutshell, this bill, the government says, gives them the rights to criminalise, detain, and deport asylum seekers. I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. But obviously, it's more complicated than that, as immigration always is, particularly when it runs, as it so often does, uh, headfirst into, into international law. The law places a legal duty on the government to detain and deport nearly all of those who arrived irregularly in the UK. So basically, that means people that come here by any route other than these very few safe routes which exist. And the principal focus of this is, of course, those people that arrive on small boats. It also um, limits the rights of asylum seekers to use a judicial review to challenge their decisions. They've been constrained. Ministers are obviously trying to bypass some of the legal wrangling that we've seen uh, over the over the plans to deport huge numbers of people to be processed in Rwanda, or I say huge numbers, 200 people to be uh, processed in Rwanda. And it also gives them the power to sidestep the European Convention of Human Rights and uh, the rulings by the European Court in that regard. And then the other bit of it is that they want to bring in an annual cap, which would be decided by Parliament on the number of people that, um, the number of refugees that the UK would offer sanctuary to, but only from these safe and legal routes. And as I said, there's very few of them at the moment. And crucially, they're not going to set up any new ones until after the legislation is in place and the small boats have been stopped. Now, you mentioned the European Convention on Human Rights a moment ago. To what extent do you think we should look at this policy move, not necessarily in terms of it being implemented and the practical effects, but that it's a big step towards making a lot of political noise and having a fight and having a fight potentially with the European Convention on Human Rights, which although it's not part of the EU, as we both know, it's got the word European in it. And so it plays to that idea of this Conservative government valiantly fighting the European beast on this terrain of immigration. So it really plays into sort of populist post-Brexit politics, really. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in the same way that successive Conservative governments have, have I'm not sure whether enjoyed is the right word, but appeared to have been engaged in quite handy domestically political fights against Europe, Strasbourg is where the, the courts are, is, is, the, is a new version of that. And this sort of suggestion that um, that it provides a sort of a helpful domestically um, common enemy um, in, in the same way that, that that was deployed during the, the Brexit war years. Uh, and, it, you know, and it's a risky political calculation for Sunak, but it is a political calculation, regardless of whether they do or don't want to actually do anything about the, the situation on the ground. It's really interesting because it he already is suggesting that uh, their moves to bring in this law would be blocked by Labour, by Keir Starmer, uh, by civil servants, by so-called lefty lawyers, um, because I think they know, I mean, they've admitted that there's a more than 50% chance that it won't, it'll run into trouble with, with um, international law on the face of the bill. So they know that it's going to struggle to get through the Commons, it's certainly going to, well, certainly going to struggle to get through the House of Lords, and it may well let, run into legal difficulty. So um, bearing in mind there's, there's, you know, less than a, there's probably 18 months or so maximum until the next election, it's highly unlikely that this legislation will be passed in time and be operating sufficiently to be able to stop those small boats. And, um, you know, Sunak is looking for people to blame. But in that sense, for the foreseeable future, it's an act of, of pure politics, right? Yes, pure politics. It's, it's about creating a, a sort of a, a wedge issue, if you like, in which they, which the Conservatives believe will be particularly pertinent in key seats that they need to hang on to at the next election. Talking of which, let's have a quick listen to what Rishi Sunak said to Keir Starmer at this week's PMQs, which reflects that idea of a, of a wedge issue and political performance. Stopping the boats is not just my priority, it is the people's priority. But his, posi- his position on this is clear. He wanted to, in his words, scrap the Rwanda deal. He voted against measures to deport foreign criminals, Mr Speaker, and he even argued against deportation flights. Well, and we know why, because on this matter, he talked about his legal background. He's just another lefty lawyer standing in our way. I wonder, do you think that's going to work, the idea that this issue allows them to land blows on the Labour Party as being all bleeding-heart liberals and left-wing lawyers and all that stuff? The Labour Party is actually ahead of the Conservative Party quite considerably on the issue of immigration, so this might not be as simple a political game as the Conservatives think. No, but I think they're going to try. Um, but I absolutely agree with you, John, that the, the people that will be blamed if small boats continue to come over and large numbers of people arrive via that route uh, will be the government. I mean, that's just a fact. And I guess what the government's trying to do in this is make it look like it's acting and um, trying to kind of trying to sort of shift the blame a bit onto others. Uh, and and but I think I mean I, I think the public will see through that. I think you know they're not going to be blaming Labour MPs or the courts for the government's failure to act. Week in week out, very often we go looking for the ghost of liberal conservatism. You know the idea that there might be some Tories left whose politics sort of stray a bit into stereotypical Guardian territory, at least mildly. I wonder, are you picking up any sort of Tory unease about this? This um this legislation and this this new policy direction on the legalities of it absolutely I mean there are, there is still a strain of conservatism which is very uncomfortable with the prospect of any domestic legislation falling foul of international law and particularly human rights law and obviously the UN the, the UN Human Rights Commissioner 
um, has suggested that um, this legislation is hugely problematic. And then we have the prospect of it falling foul of the, of the ECHR itself. And, you know, this is a big deal for lots of Tory MPs. This is a drafted after World War II to protect people from state power. And crucially, at the moment, it underpins the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, we've seen how complicated and um, how politically uh, difficult it is for any government. And this government saw this last week with the Northern Ireland Protocol deal to, to navigate that territory. So there is lots of Tory backbenchers that are very concerned about the legal aspect of it. And it's actually very striking that despite what it says on the first page of the bill, on the front page of the bill about potentially breaching international law, Rishi Sunak has been quite clear that he doesn't believe that it will. And when he was pressed at his uh, at his press conference uh, the day they launched the legislation uh, as to whether he would be prepared to withdraw from the convention, should he have to, he didn't answer the question. And that's because he knows it would be, and probably his instinct, to be fair, is that you know you should abide by abide by law, not least because he's seen politically the trouble that it created for the UK on the on the global stage when Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson did similar. Politics and political journalism, it seems to me, tends to tend to have a very short memory. And if you you know, if you go back twenty five years, you find policy and rhetoric which seem very, very similar. You know, in two thousand the Lib Dems said they were going to report Tony Blair and the Tory leader William Hague to the Commission for Racial Equality for using inflammatory language about asylum seekers. Um, at that point, William Hague pledged that a Tory government would herd all asylum seekers into into detention centres, regardless of their plight. The Guardian reported in 2000 that the then Labour Immigration Minister Barbara Roach had unveiled plans to set up more detention centres for asylum seekers, including new walled camps. I remember in 2001 watching Labour Immigration Ministers dressed as Border Force agents, you know, doing a photo op, pretending to take vans apart in Dover to try and find illegal immigrants. And then in 2004, the Home Office was reportedly in talks with Tanzania to send failed asylum seekers from Somalia um, there and for some asylum seekers to be housed there while their applications were processed in the UK, right? So although the severity of this might be something new, it has lots and lots of echoes in the recent past, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, I remember that Tanzania one well. It was one of the, the criticisms of, of from the left of um, of New Labour was that on immigration they were you know they were too tough. But they calculated that in order to sort of span the political divide and hold together that coalition of voters, they needed to be able to keep socially conservative voters on board. And immigration is a very is one of the top issues for socially conservative voters. And it that's happened again. It's bubbled up again to the top of, of list of concerns among the type of voters that either party needs to win over um, to win the next election. Do you think politicians sort of feel the, the futility of this, that actually, when it comes down to it, it won't make that much of a difference? Well, I think lots of Conservatives do at the moment, given it's just a year since their last bit of legislation and their last set of big promises to finally deal with the situation once and for all. Clearly, that didn't work. You know, one thing I've really noticed in covering immigration over the years in the UK is that it's really always seen through a domestic prism, or almost always seen through a domestic prism. And it's about um, how people on the streets of Britain feel about their public services and whether, for example, they can get an appointment to the GPs, whether their class sizes are too big, whether they can get uh, work. It's those moments that people start to feel uncomfortable about the level of 
immigration, whether it's whether it's um, and, and often, sadly, people kind of lump in together legal migration and and refugees. It is, I think, it's very hard for politicians to to turn it on its head and and and, and tell people that they shouldn't be, or suggest to people that they shouldn't be worried about you know their local areas and getting housing and and all those sorts of legitimate concerns in many cases, and actually concerns which are primarily about lack of investment in those areas, you know, UK government investment rather than anything else, and that they should be looking abroad, looking abroad instead, and and sort of trying to come up with some sort of international response. I'm sure that there are politicians that have tried it over the years, but they certainly failed. Now, we both know the sort of standard Tory calculation in all this is that this is an issue that makes life difficult for the Labour Party, right? It teases out the Labour Party's supposed liberal instincts. At this week's PMQs, Rishi Sunak accused Keir Starmer of wanting open immigration and unlimited asylum, right? The Labour Party in response, it seems to me, is obviously aware of that, right? It's sensitive to it. So in response, Pippa, the Labour Party's point really is that the state of the asylum system and the issue of so-called small boats just underlines Tory incompetence. That's basically their attack line. Yeah, and actually it's not a bad one when you consider that Sula Bravman has stood up at the dispatch box in recent in recent weeks and talked about how the asylum system isn't fit for purpose, about how it's broken. It's very hard to hear that and not to ask who's been in government for who broke it yeah, who yeah. broke it you can't blame it on the on the previous labor administration 13 years ago so i think um i think that defense has very little traction and what i think has been really notable in the last couple of weeks is how they're very much sticking to the facts the numbers these are the people that you know you've you've that, that have arrived since the conservatives have been in power you know last year only 3% of uh, asylum claims um, of people that arrived last year uh, have been processed, uh, trying to sort of underline that the system as it exists now is wrong, rather than going down the moral the yeah, the moral yeah. argument. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are people that would like to hear the moral argument in defence of offering people from really difficult parts of the world sanctuary here, uh, as, as has been a long tradition in Britain. But I can understand why Labour doesn't want to go too far down that route because it will be weaponised against them. And actually sticking to the, the facts on this is probably their safest course of action. I guess the issue with that, among many, is that it leaves in place this idea that a majority of people in Britain are very, very worked up about this and, broadly speaking, support or sympathise with this new approach. And I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I doubt it. And then the other thing is it just it does leave a vacuum, I suppose. There are millions and millions of people who look to politics on this issue and they don't see a reflection of what they think about it. And the only, the only people who, who kind of speaking up for that point of view... <laughs> defines the, the 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 stereotypical post-Brexit sort of slightly balmy way that this issue transformed on Wednesday morning was that it, half of it became about Gary Lineker and what Gary yeah. Lineker had said, said on Twitter, right? Because he's filling the vacuum. Yeah, but it's not about everybody in the country or even the majority of the people in the country. It's about, as so much of our politics has been post-Brexit, those voters that left the Labour Party and moved to the Conservative Party. And we do this awful shorthand about red wall seats and so on, suggesting that everyone in, in those constituency feels the same way feels the same ways about these things. But I speak to MPs, Labour MPs and Tory MPs that talk about going out to the local market, talk about going to the pub, talking about you know, people at the school gates. And this is coming up as an issue. And these are 
key swing seats, which whoever wins the next election is going to have to win over. So that's why there is this this overemphasis, if you like, on this as a political issue, as well as the fact, frankly, that the government doesn't have much of a good news story to tell when it comes to things like the cost of living, the state of the public services. So there's like a distraction technique from all of that as well. They're trying to find ground on which their core vote, they think, will come out, come in behind them. Sunak himself yeah, yeah. is trying to find ground that he can unite his still very fractured parliamentary party around and also have find ground where he can attack Labour and create this wedge issue at the election. And what issue can do all those three things? It's immigration. Right, so all this arguably boils down to one question. I mean, it doesn't really in the sense that all of those moral considerations that we talked about are very very relevant and the question of who's going to speak to those in politics and the Labour Party's position I mean there's a thousand and one issues sort of woven through all this what happens as is overwhelmingly likely when the boats don't stop do you think Sunak and his government will be judged as harshly as they seem to be inviting or do you think that in the end as we said a moment ago this is more about generating political noise, picking fights, being seen to say something. And therefore, the question of practical results isn't quite as important as some people might think. I think the practical, the practical results do come into it because he wants to be seen as a fixer. He wants to be seen as somebody who can deliver and who can get stuff done. But you can't escape the fact that there are political benefits, potentially risky though it is, for Sunak. His challenge on this will be persuading the public who will be judging whether he's able to bring down the numbers of people coming over by small boats, that his failure to do that is not his fault. That it's the courts, that it's the Labour Party, that it's the civil servants, that it's Europe, and that it's anyone other than them. And they've been stymied in those efforts. And therefore, they need the electoral mandate to push through their plans. And the public has to give that to them at the next election. It's such a sort of repeated storyline in modern politics, this, across the world, isn't it? Particularly in this sort of area. You float an idea and you float a policy and you know full well that there's a fair likelihood that nothing is going to come of it. But when nothing is seen to come of it, you can then blame lefty lawyers and the deep state and whoever else. And that somehow sort of firms up your political position and your sell to the voters. It's like Donald Trump and his wall, right? The idea, whether the wall actually got built was secondary to the fact he stood there making a lot of noise about it. And if anyone asked him what happened to the wall, he could just blame his political opponents, right? It's precisely the same calculation. It's also like Tony Abbott in Australia and his Stop the Boots campaign using exactly the same slogan. I mean, he was in opposition, but he won that election on the basis of promises to stop the boats. And that was the Isaac Levito, Linton Crosby playbook Who's helping run Rishi Sunak's election campaign? Isaac Levito. Right, on that thoroughly uplifting and cheery note, we shall draw <laughs> things to a close. Thank you so much for joining us, Pippa. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week the UK wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.